Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series in the book of Haggai with a message entitled, Resting in God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 to 23, as we conclude the series, God's Presence Among His People. The most important thing that we can ever do in this world is to learn to rest in God's abundant provision. Look, He's God. The world is made by Him, and He owns everything in the universe, and God's supply is unending. You know, in Matthew 6, Jesus asked a series of questions of His followers. Well, first He began with a command. He demanded that we should not be anxious about our lives. That is, we should not worry if there's enough to eat or drink or to clothe ourselves. You know, in our language today, we ask, I mean, how can I keep the wolf from my door? How can I pay the bills? How can I take care of the necessities of life? You know, everyone asks these questions, and the questions themselves cause a great many people to stress. But Jesus told his followers not to stress. But how's that possible? And to this, Jesus asks a series of questions. The first, is not life more than food and clothing? Second, Notice how your heavenly Father feeds the birds, and don't you think that in His estimation, you're more important to Him than they? Third, did worry ever work in your favor? And fourth, if field flowers are sometimes stunning in their beauty, don't you think God can clothe you and feed you and give you enough to drink? Ah, yes, trusting and resting in God's provision. It's one of the most important lessons any child of God can learn. Stop stressing, because stressing means you haven't learned that you're dependent on God. Instead, you actually think that your well-being is dependent on you. That's why you're stressing. But if you believe that you're dependent on God, well, you do what Philippians 4, 6 tells you to do. You'd not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication or by prayer and earnestly appealing to God with thanksgiving, that is, with praise and joyful gratefulness. You'd make your request known to God. And then after having trusted and prayed, you'd find that there's an amazing peace, a peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards your heart from future stress. And it's this lesson that we don't easily learn. And why is that? Because we have what we shall call misplaced values. So what are misplaced values? Misplaced values are any values at all that do not have the desire for the presence of God as the first passion in our lives. Let me say something very similar. Whenever we want something more than God, we begin to stress. (laughs) Or let me say it still another way. Whenever you're dominated by fear or stress or discouragement, anger, lust, anxiety, that's a symptom. It's a red light going off somewhere in your system that you don't want God more than anything else. That's why your life is out of whack. Well, now we have for one week been studying the Old Testament book of Haggai. And in this book, we found a group of Jews after having spent 70 years in forced exile, being allowed to return to the promised land. And one of the first things they did was begin to rebuild the burned down and ruined temple that King Solomon had built. The temple was a symbol that God was among his people. And so for returning exiles, nothing greater could be done than to demonstrate that God was among his people and that his people wanted him more than they wanted anything else. But then because of a series of events, for the next 17 years, after having laid the foundation of the temple and 
Having built the altar of sacrifice, the temple remained in ruins. And consequently, the blessing of God was not among his people. And then along came a prophet of God named Haggai, who, who began to preach to the people and condemn their misplaced values. And amazingly, the people repent and revival breaks out. God's people find that God's word is now precious to them and that obedience is not an option. Instead, they have a zeal for obedience. And now the temple is being rebuilt and joy and peace is settling among God's people. Well, let's read what happens next. So here I'm reading Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, as we've studied the book of Haggai, we have noticed that the book is divided into a number of oracles and that, you know, that each one of them is dated. The first one came from the second year of Darius, the sixth month, the first day, which, which was, as you'll recall, exactly equal to our August 29, 520 BC. The second event, that is the revival and obedience, happens exactly 21 days later. The second oracle happens in the seventh month, the 21st day, which is close to a month later. And now this, the third oracle, this one on the 24th day of the ninth month is two months after the last one. And that's important. And in our way of reckoning, it's now December 18th, 520 BC. It's winter. It's very important to understand this. And I'm going to explain why in just a little bit. But in the winter at the end of 520, Haggai has an oracle. It begins with a question based on the ritual laws of purity that are found in the Old Testament. And the question is simple. If someone who's ritually unclean touches consecrated meat or wine or oil or anything else, anything that's consecrated and made holy to God, does that person become clean or does the consecrated thing become unclean? And everyone, especially the priest, knew the answer to that. Now, because you and I don't live in that world, let me try a contemporary example. Men, let's say that you're out in the garage changing the oil in your car and your hands, well, they're filthy and you come into the house and your wife hollers, don't you dare touch anything. I just cleaned the whole house. But you go into the bathroom, you turn on the lights and you touch the handle of the toilet, a couple of other things. Now, here's an IQ test, men. Since all the things were just clean, do your hands become clean by touching the things your wife has just cleaned 
or do the clean things become dirty by, by coming in contact with your filthy hands? Now, man, if you don't know the answer to that, might I suggest that that's one of the reasons you've got marriage problems today. Listen, all joking aside, this is no different than the question that Haggai asks. Do the ritually pure things become defiled, or does the unclean individual become clean? And the answer is that the impure person makes impure everything that he touches. Well, says Haggai, that's how it is with this entire nation. In those days when you neglected the house of God and had allowed the temple to remain in ruin, while you busied yourself with your own houses and your own farms and your own finances, and while this was the case, everything that you touched became defiled. Everything you offered as a sacrifice to God in those days was defiled. Everything you did to build your house was defiled. And that must have been shocking to, uh, to a lot of people. Are you saying my land is defiled? And that's why I've been having such miserable crops? And then God responds by saying, that's exactly what I'm saying. Whether it was the low yield in your crops or the diseases like mildew that you were constantly plagued with, it was I, says the Lord, I was the one that did it. I saw you as unclean and you were unconcerned with seeking my presence. And so everything you touched was infected with the same problem. And in all of this, I was against you and you're never going to get ahead. Shall we make application? I think it's time. You know, it is possible at this point to see this as, as a promise that, you know, if you see God first in all that you do, that, that God's going to make you rich. You know, your business, your investment, your land, your house, everything is going to rise and you're going to be wealthier than you've ever been before. Indeed, there have been those who have used passages just like this that we find here in Haggai and they've made just such a point. It's called a health and wealth gospel. So here's our question. Does the book of Haggai invite us into a prosperity gospel? You know, make God first and your wealth will increase. And if it doesn't say that, how should we apply the book of Haggai to our lives today? It's an absolute honor to share that this month, our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary a decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. To Phil and the friends of Laugh Again, thank you so much for such a unique and uplifting ministry. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series, stories and messages of hope that lift the spirit even in tough times. Or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family. Visit laughagain.ca and when you're there, consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus. From the perspective of the book of Haggai, two incidents in the life of Jesus are fascinating and wonderfully uplifting. The first comes from Matthew 9, 20 to 21. That passage says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. 
For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So why is that wonderful? Well, according to Leviticus 15.25, well, let's let the passage speak for itself. It says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Oh, I hope you see it. According to what we've read in Haggai, when this woman touched Jesus, Jesus should have been made unclean and should have had to be ritually cleansed. But amazingly, that's not what happened. Instead, contrary to everything that Haggai mentions, Jesus remains clean and the unclean woman is made clean by touching the clean Jesus. Now, let's go forward to the second incident in the life of Jesus, and it's, it's recorded in Matthew 14, 34 to 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. You see, this didn't just happen once. Unclean people were touching Jesus all the time, and what happened was exactly the opposite of what you would expect should happen. Jesus was never rendered unclean, and that's because he couldn't be made unclean. Instead, miraculously, in the time of Jesus, he was cleansing the unclean all the time. And that's the point of our application to Haggai and what happened then. The application is not that if we put God first, we're going to become wealthy. The application is that we are like the people of Haggai's time. We've not put God first, and that's why we've suffered anxiety and want and lack of gratefulness and and loss. And even in this, we've not been treated as our sins deserved. And when Jesus comes to us, he does what the Old Testament temple could never do. Hebrews 10.1 reminds us that the law could never, by the same sacrifices that were continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. No, no. The temple is not the presence of God. It is the symbol of the presence of God. But Jesus is not the symbol of the presence of God. He is the very presence of God itself. That's why he's greater than the temple. And so building the temple in the time of Haggai is, as in our time, roughly equivalent to seeking Jesus and putting him first in all of our affection, that is, in the desires of our heart. And what does Jesus then promise us? Well, yeah, he does promise us persecution and even hardship, but but he also promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And he promises us an eternal kingdom that will never pass away and a rich banqueting feast in the age to come and the promise that, that we will rule and reign with him for eternity. And so if you want to apply Haggai 2 to our lives today, it's not that you can become wealthy in this life. That's not the point. The point is found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 19. Haggai asks, is the seed yet in the barn? Remember when I started, I said that it's of great importance that this oracle from God was given in December. You know, in ancient Israel, the crop would be planted in the late fall after the harvest had come in. And that's what Haggai is saying. Back in fall, when you took the crop from the field, it was was another failed harvest. And then as you always did, you planted next year's crop in the late fall, waiting for it to germinate in the spring. And because the crop was so poor from the last harvest, after eating and planting, well, there's nothing left. And so he asks, is that crop that you sowed, is that crop in your barn? Well, no. 
it was all gone. But, says the Lord, now that you've begun rebuilding of the temple and you've sought to put me first and seek my presence in your midst, the next harvest, the one that now lies in the field, is going to be a bumper crop. In the end of verse 19, he says, I will bless you. The days of a poor harvest are gone now. God is going to visit you, and you're never going to forget that the grace of God follows when you seek God first. And that's our lesson. Seeking Christ as our Savior and Lord is the promise to us that the seed is in the field. In just a little while, the harvest is going to come, and the rich reward of eternity is going to be upon us. Seek Christ first, and the eternal kingdom will be yours. All right, that was Haggai's third oracle, an oracle that happened in December of 520. On that same day, Haggai has one more final oracle. So here I'm reading Haggai 2, 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. If you want any proof that the message of Haggai is not to be applied to the present-day health and wealth gospel, but a future assurance of an unshakable kingdom, well, well, here it is. Remember that the message of Haggai is given to a group of people who got on with their lives without seeking the Lord's presence. The temple was allowed to remain in ruins while they got on with, you know, building their own houses and planting their own crops and carrying on their own religion and offering sacrifices and celebrating the sacred feast days at the right time of the year. And yet, as all that was going on, without hearts and lives that were quick to repent and quick to obey and quick to seek the presence of God. In other words, the people realized that they could practice their religion and take care of their families and finances without God. What they hadn't realized was that God whom they were essentially ignoring was the God who just simply can't be ignored. He not only owns the earth in each individual life, he not only owns the trees that were chopped down to build the houses, he also owns the seed in the field, and he owns the field, and he owns the soil, and he owns the scientific principles of germination. Yeah, he owns all of that, but he also owns the future. And the God who owns the future is now telling the Jews who have come back from exile, in a little while, I'm about to fulfill my plans. Well, of course, we did notice in chapter 1 that the temple Israel was rebuilding was going to be much greater than the one that Solomon had built. This second temple would be the very temple that the Messiah would enter. And the glory of the second temple would far surpass that of the first temple. But in Haggai's day, that was an event that was still in the future. But now in the last oracle of this book, Haggai makes it clear that God has global plans. God's plans include the overthrow of every nation on earth. Kings and kingdoms are going to fall before him. And furthermore, the military structures of the most powerful nations of the earth are going to crumble. The strength of nations, the ones that Haggai mentions, has to include both their militaries and their economies. No matter how strong, all nations are going to melt like wax when the great king sets out to uproot all of mankind's pride and the symbols of their grandeur. 
And furthermore, when Haggai talks about everyone going down by the sword of his brother, well, he has in mind that the strongest alliances the earth has ever seen are going to crumble and turn against each other. And in that day, says Haggai, God will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. See, if you read Matthew 1, verse 13, and then Luke 3, 27, you're going to find out that Zerubbabel is a direct ancestor of both Mary and Joseph, and therefore a direct ancestor of Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And a signet ring, well, that was a ring that an ancient king would use to authorize all his letters and all his commands and all of his communication. Zerubbabel, the man building the temple, the man chosen by God to reestablish the presence of God among his people, was the forerunner to the man chosen by God to be the temple of God made flesh and who would eventually claim this world as his own. So then why should a people or any individual seek God first? Well, yeah, it's true that we won't stress as much for all of life is now in God's hands. But it's also true that when we seek God first, we're seeking him who will destroy houses and lands and kings and kingdoms and economies and systems of wealth. Everything will be shaken. In the end, all that will remain is the God who created all things and the people who hold fast to him. You see, the message of Haggai then is so simple. Make Jesus Christ the Lord of all you have and all you want. For his sake, sacrifice everything. For he alone is all that matters. And in that, you have inherited everything. Thanks so much, John. A great series. We just appreciate it so much. But you know, my question comes out of what you just said just a moment ago. You said, make Jesus Christ the first of all that you love and want. Now, I think perhaps it's easy for us as Christians to think, I give Christ everything I have, everything everything he's given me, I, I give back to him. But then it's more difficult perhaps to think about what I want and passing over how he would direct our wants according to his will and purpose. Yeah, you know, uh, when the Apostle Paul mentions that he has suffered the loss of all things, he counts all of that as rubbish up against the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And Ben, that's what I think um, we really need to stress. If you were to lose everything that you had, but you were to, through that, get a higher sense of the glory of Jesus and of your great need for him, I mean, it should be as nothing to you. And that's really the test of whether or not we have sought him first. If I lost everything and yet I gained Christ in a greater way, it would be riches far surpassing all things. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us next time right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16. But sometimes, the things we think we know lose our attention. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Neufeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 3.16. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for his glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month 
for free. So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.